It's good to be here. It's good to see everyone. Um, welcome to everyone online and everyone in person, and thanks to everyone serving. Let's give everyone serving a big hand. Yeah, thank you to our worship team for today leading us. It was a great opening worship. Really good. Thank you, guys. I really feel blessed by that. Very blessed. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're finishing our Exodus series today. Heather just read us the last passage uh, on this. And then next Sunday, it's Father's Day, so we'll be doing Donuts for Dads. And actually, Heather uh, will be, my wife will be preaching, so you don't want to miss that. It'll be pretty great. And then the week after that, uh, so in two Sundays' time, we're starting a new series called God of Justice. And it's going to be great because it's going to be super controversial, so you don't want to miss it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm already sweating. All right. Help us, we all need help, all kinds of help with all kinds of things all the time. So, we're in, we're in the last chapter of Exodus. We've been going multiple weeks through the book of Exodus, taking it thematically, looking at certain sections. We haven't been able to cover it verse by verse, but I would encourage you to read through the book of Exodus and get a feel for uh, the whole story. Um, before we, we, we get into what we just read and unpack it, I want to frame today's sermon with a story, a true story, actually the first part of a true story. Um, Dr. Samuel Weinstein, who is, who was, who is a, a chief uh, pediatric cardiologist in New York City, he traveled in two, 2006, he traveled to El Salvador to serve un, uh, impoverished children, to do life-saving heart operations on them. And one of his patients was an eight-year-old boy uh, named Francisco. And uh, Francisco's case was particularly difficult. And the doctor, uh, Dr. Samuel Weinstein, operated for 12 hours. Uh, it was a very, extremely complicated surgery. And of course, the hospitals, uh, not up to the same standards that he would have been used to, and didn't have all the medication that they needed. And uh, Francisco started bleeding out uh, uncontrollably. And they, he had a very rare uh, blood type uh, B negative, which only 2% of the population have and the hospital didn't have any B-negative blood. So the whole staff, the whole medical staff, they're all there. And of course, this doctor's come you know, a long way, traveled a long way, spent hours in the surgery, and it looks like it's all over. It looks like it's all for nothing. What are they going to do? What's going to happen? So I'm going to pause the story there. It relates to our passage. We're gonna, I'm gonna, I'll tell you the conclusion of the story at, at the end of, uh, of this. Let me give a truncated summary of Exodus so far. Try and not do it as long as I have been doing it each week. Uh, but as we know in Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt. They're multiplying, growing. The Egyptians are living in dread of them. They enslave them into forced labor. They start killing their baby boys, this genocide that happens. God raises up Moses as a deliverer who ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as an Egyptian. In later life, sees the oppression of his people, kills an Egyptian, and has to flee and then sometime later, encounters God in the burning bush, is sent with a divine mission to release the Hebrews, and God uses Moses in some very powerful ways to punish the, he the, the Egyptians excuse me, with plagues, and they're eventually destroyed in the parting of the Red Sea, where Israel is delivered from their oppression, and they're now wandering in the desert. God provides manna, this special bread from heaven, and he's, he's giving them plans about the new land of Canaan that they're going to inherit, that they're going to move into. And uh, as they go on, what we now, at the end of the book of Exodus, it then changes, the story changes. It's been 
narrative up to this point, and then the second half of Exodus is all about the tabernacle and the priestly system. So it changes from a story that is telling a true history that is telling us about this amazing deliverance, and now it starts describing in great detail building this tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent, so it's temporary, gets moved around. It's basically a place where the priests could seek God for the people's sins to be forgiven, for people to know their maker, to be made one, to be made right with their maker. And what we're going to see about this tabernacle, this whole business, we're going to get into it, we're going to look at what it all means and how it all works, but we're going to see it's, it prefigures the person and work of Jesus. That's what it's all about. Let's pray and then let's unpack this. Jesus, help us today to understand your word. Illuminate it to our hearts that we would not be confused by it or that we, it would not feel so distant and so strange to us, but that we would, we would be able to understand what it means and that we would, by understanding the truth of what it means, that we would be transformed by it to worship you all the more, to enjoy you all the more, to find you all the more. God, help us to know who you are and the work that you have achieved for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, why does God do all this tabernacle business this way? There's a lot of strange stuff in it. You read certain parts of the Old Testament and you think, it's a bit peculiar. I think as we go through this sermon, I hope it makes more sense as we go through it. It takes time. You have to study these things and think about them and, and contemplate them and, and, and find their meaning. Um, but let me start with a couple of things. God has a big plan to redeem people and to save people from their sin. Sin's the problem. God's got the solution. That has to happen in a particular place and time, in a particular context, with people that would understand it in a way that makes sense to them. And so that means that it's human and messy and strange and a little bit bizarre to different people at different times in different contexts. Also think about it like this. God wants to have a relationship with his people. Wants, he's got this plan of redemption and salvation. The people... Like all people, all believers needed this, need this, and the Israelites, they needed this too. They needed a visual representation of God's power and God's presence. That's one of the things the tabernacle provided for them. They needed, they needed a way, to, a concrete way to have a relationship with God. They needed to be able to see the beauty and the mystery of God. They needed to have a significant way of contributing to, towards this, this worship and this sacrificial system, they're bringing their talents, their skills to actually build it, but also their sacrifices at this, this tabernacle. God knowing this, knowing the human condition, knowing we, we need some, some ways to help us actually approach God and know God and deal with our sin, has designed this tabernacle in a very powerful way, way more impressive and way more important than their attempt to get close to God, which was through the golden calf, making this, this idol, which was ridiculous and stupid, this tabernacle thing, the glory of it outshines any human attempt to try and worship and celebrate God, completely outshines it. So we're given very specific description of the tabernacle. As we said, the, the second, roughly the second half of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. There's a, there's a lot of detail about it, about the priests and what they're supposed to wear and how it's all supposed to be set up. It's, it's, it's very complicated, very intricate, and you can get lost uh, reading some of it, but we really should think about the tabernacle as a portable temple. That's what it is. It's a portable temple. This is a place where the people 
can have their sins forgiven. It's a substitutionary sacrifice can be made for the people's sins, and they can know God and be made closer to God. Many times in the passage we read and throughout other parts of Exodus, it refers to the tabernacle as the tent of meeting. That phrase used over and over again. It's a tent of meeting. Now, we might think, in our minds, we might think, oh, it's kind of like a, a church meeting, right? It's a tent of meeting. It's like a place where you gather together and, you know, worship God. That's not what it is. It's a tent for meeting with God. So only the, the priests could go into the tabernacle. Actually, fast-forwarding uh, into the book of uh, Hebrews in the New Testament, we're told something very insightful. We've preached on these verses before, and we're going to go through the setup in the tabernacle, which we have done before as well, but we're going to bring more understand, even more understanding to it this time than we have in the past. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, so this is thousands of years later, we're given some insights about what was happening back then with the tabernacle. And it talks about it, and it says, verse 5, it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Talking about the priests in the tabernacle, it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So as we looked at in previous weeks going through Exodus, Moses is up the mountain hearing from God. There's the cloud. God's speaking the Ten Commandments to the people. They're getting the tablets with the Ten Commandments in, engraved on them. And in that encounter, some of the things that are going on is God is telling Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle. I want you to build this portable temple, and this is what it's going to be like. And this is the, this is the, this is the interior design of uh, how it's all supposed all the furnishings that are supposed to go inside of it, how it's supposed to be constructed. And Hebrews tells us this is a mimic. This is a physical way. This is what the, the best human attempt you could have of trying to show us what God's presence is like, what's it, what it's like in heaven. The tabernacle is heaven on earth. This is what it's like to be in God's presence. We're trying to, it's not, because they said it's a copy. It's a foreshadowing. It's an image of it. So it's not God's presence can inhabit it and transform it in that way, but it's trying to capture the sense of being transformed from a fallen, broken, sinful world to have into a holy, heavenly place where you can have a relationship, a right relationship with God. So let's look at the tabernacle. I've got an exciting laser pointer I'm going to use today. We've got some pictures here, some photographs that we're taking at the time. So... We, we have the, the outer screen, as it mentioned. This is the outer screen. This is the tabernacle. This whole area here, is, this is the tent of meeting. This is the tabernacle. Obviously, you have the, the Hebrews camped out. This would have been in the, in the center, in the middle of where they were, wherever they moved in the wilderness. For, for 40 years, this was the deal. This is what they were doing. This outer screen would have been put up, as, according to the passage that we read, it would have been the last thing to be put up. So that means everyone would have seen everything else constructed. They would have seen all the different elements and what this all means. And then this would have been put up. And you have the, uh, the first gate or curtain here that the priests uh, come through. You have a second curtain gate or you know, entrance here. Um, they're just curtains. They're curtains that are layered on top of each other. And then you actually have a, another chamber in the back here with another curtain here. So you have three levels of curtains, of entrances. This actually mimics Canaanite uh, temples. They had three levels of, of getting into 
uh, the, the final chamber, if you will. And so it's, it's an interesting point, actually, that God's using something of the day, but He's redeeming and transforming the, 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 some of the worship practices of the day. It's an important lesson uh, for us in that. Here, um, this is an altar. This is the first altar. This is where the, uh, the burnt offerings would have been. They, they would have drained the, 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 brought the animals, drained them of blood, burnt the offering, uh, burnt the, the meat there. And then they, uh, also the grain offering would have been given there as well. So the priests are doing all that business around here. Then they bring the blood with them. You know, they're going to take it into the, the tent of meeting. This is uh, the basin full of water. And it, in the passage we read, it says that they wash their feet and they wash their hands. And that symbolizes, you know, being cleansed, being made holy. In fact, from chapter 25 all the way to chapter 40, Exodus mention, mentions holiness 80 times. It's a really big idea that the people, God is holy, He is other, He's different to us. We have to be cleansed of our sin. We have to be made right. This symbolizes the priest being made clean. They then enter the second uh, gate or these curtains and, and go in. Let's go to the second, the, the next uh, picture. All right, so this is, this is the tent of meeting. So we've got the outer screen here. Um, they, they enter through this, uh, these curtains here. We have, so this first chamber is called the holy place. All right, this is the holy place. The second chamber is the most holy place. Here you have a table with what's called the bread of the presence that was put on the table. They put 12 loaves of bread, and they had drinking water as well, on the table. In pagan practices, the priests would sacrifice the bread for the pagan gods, for the false idols. In Hebrew worship, they, they eat the bread, and they drink the water. The reason is, is that this is like God's living room. He's got a nice little one-studio apartment. <laughs> you know, studio apartment like his, you know, he's got a nice little table. No chairs, unfortunately, but, you know, he doesn't get tired, so he doesn't need chairs. But he's got a nice little table, so the bread's there. They, they eat the bread. It's the idea that they're coming in to have a meal with God. They're having communion with God. They're, they're, they're eating with God. That's the idea. That's the friendship, the relationship with God. We, across from there, we have the lampstand. Uh, where they would light these lights, and this would have been this would have been an enclosed environment. So it would have been dark in there, and uh, they have candles here that they light so they can see what they're doing. And this is said to be perhaps mimicked after an almond tree that was one of the first ones to um, bud and to have leaves um, in this in in uh, Israel. Uh, it could be that others say that it could be representative of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Um, not sure exactly the, the meaning of it. We're not, there's, there's certain details we don't know. There's certain details. They had some of the details. We don't know some of it. So some of it's guesswork. But um, when Jesus said that he was the light of the world, if you were Jewish at this and, and, and you knew all this, you might think of this lampstand when Jesus said that he was the light of the world. Powerful imagery for them. Then you have the golden altar of incense right here. Its only purpose is to burn incense. A couple of reasons for the incense. They had to spray animal blood over everything. It's weird. I know. It's, it's hard for us to imagine. It wasn't weird for them. Blood is a symbol of life. And they would have sprayed the, the animal's blood over all of the utensils, over all the different things. And it would have been gross. So a practical, it would have smelled disgusting. So a practical reason is you got some incense to cover up that. 
but also you're trying to mimic, you're trying to create a heavenly environment. You're trying to transport the priests into a holy, heavenly place where, their sins, where the people's sins can be atoned for and they can be made right with God. And so the burning of the incense creates this, it's like the modern-day smoke machines in church. It's not like that, no. But if you had anything similar to that, it would be, that would be the, that's the most similar thing you could think of, other than, I guess, churches actually burn incense, so there you go. Yeah. That's the golden altar of incense right there. Then we have this curtain right here, which is a very thick curtain. Again, layers of curtains that they had to kind of weave through. Only the high priest, once a year, could enter this chamber. This is the most holy place. It has the Ark of the Covenant in it. The Ark, it's an archaic word. It just means box. It's just a box. a very fancy box, gold-plated, beautiful in design. It has a lid on it, which is called the mercy seat, two cherubim facing each other with wings outstretched towards each other. In the ark is uh, what's called the, the testimony, which is basically the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The two together are called the testimony. They're placed into the ark. And then you also have a golden, um, uh, what is it? A golden like thing, urn type thing. I'm trying to, I'm forgetting the name of it. But anyway, it's got, the, it's got some manna in it that God had given them in the wilderness. And then uh, you also, Aaron's staff ended up getting put in here at, at some point later on uh, as well. We haven't talked about Aaron's staff, but uh, that ends up in here in the ark as well. Now, I've said this before, and many people will say this, that this is to mimic or to actually, as a, a sign to not just the Israelites, but to all the peoples, the surrounding nations of the day, you can take this down now, that the inner chamber, the most holy place, that the other nations, you know, they had royalty, they had kings, and it's a, it's a big tension in the Old Testament that the, the Israelites wanted their own king like the other nations, and God said, no, I'm your king. So the idea of, of the, the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant in it is that uh, that is like God's throne room. But Israel doesn't have royal bloodlines. They're not supposed to have that kind of, because God's their king, and this is his throne room. There's not a person dwelling on this throne. It's God. So that's one way to look at it, but actually a, a, a a better way to understand this is King David himself, elsewhere in Scripture, said that God's throne is the heavens and the ark is his footstool. That's a better way to look at it. So it's not, it, it's, it does mimic uh, kind of a, a royal palace, if you will, or a kingly environment, if you will, but it's more God's footstool. That's the way, so the idea of you're sitting in a chair, then you've got a small little stool for your feet to rest upon. That's what this is. It's all imagery. It's all metaphor. It all means something. And God inhabited and filled this, this tabernacle with his presence. Now, this tells us some stuff about God, right? It tells us that in the design of this tabernacle, that he's a God of order and a God of balance, that he's a God of beauty and serenity, that he's a God who wants his presence to be with his people. He wants to be close to his people. But the, the, the tabernacle would have been a constant reminder to the people because only the priests could go in and then they had these very elaborate steps in order to actually get in and only once a year could the high priest get into that inner chamber. All of this, all of this would have been a constant reminder to the people there's this massive gap between you and God. You are sinful. You're in darkness. You're fallen. God is completely other to you, completely removed from you, completely holy, completely different to you completely above you. And the tabernacle would have, would have reinforced that massive divide, that massive chasm between the human race and between God. But also, it would have been a constant reminder 
that there's a way to get close to God. That even though there's this massive divide, God has, by his grace, made a way for them to have their sins forgiven, for them to know the one true God, for his presence to remain with them. So by day, there's a cloud, and by night, the fire is in the tent of meeting. That God made a way for it to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't their sacrifices that were the power of this. It was God's willingness to forgive them of their sin. That was, that's the power that actually brings this relationship around. What else do we learn from this? There's so much to learn from this. God is a God of, of rhythm. God gives us practices. He, gives us, he calls us into specific, tangible, real-world things to do in order to relate to him and to follow him and to trust him. But what we've got to learn from this, because this is what kind of a religious heart can do, and this is what the people kept falling into, is once they had all this stuff set up, they end up, the human heart tends to gravitate towards the forms and the functions and gets overly focused on those things, doing those particular things in particular ways, and forgets the, the purpose and the object of them, which is God himself. Because even later on in the Old Testament, you have God saying, I don't desire sacrifice, Right? It's, it's kind of interesting. Like, okay, this is by God's grace. He's, found a, he's created a way and a means for the people to be free from their sin and for them to know him. But even in following all the rituals and the habit, habits, people can lose their way in all of that too and forget what it's all about, forget why they're doing it. We learn that we see this in Moses. We see this amazing attitude in Moses, how different Moses was to the, other, to the rest of the people, how it was hard for the people to really get this idea. And you see, God, it, said, it didn't say it several times in the passage that Heather read. It said several times, Moses built this according to how God told him to do it. He did it. He followed it. He was obedient. See, they weren't being very obedient. They made this golden calf. They, they, they had all these other ideas. They were engineering all these other ideas of how we're going to follow. We're going to inject all our other ideas about how we're going to follow God and how we're going to relate to God. Moses built this tabernacle in the precise way that God said, this is the way to do it. This is the way to relate to me. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of, that's what it's about. It's about trusting the voice of God. Even if we don't understand it all, all the time, trusting the voice of God, but being willing to follow him. He does help us understand things. It's not like he, he keeps us in the dark all the time. He does help us understand things, but sometimes we can't understand things. Sometimes it's not good for us to know all the things all the time. So, we, so how do we apply this to ourselves? What can we learn for our day? Well, what's our mission? What's God called us to do? What's God... You know, obviously we don't have the tabernacle anymore. We're going to talk about the transformation of all, all that and what that all means and how that relates to this prefiguring of Jesus. We're going to get all to that. But Jesus came and his big mission was to start his church, right? To start his church. Jesus said, you know, he was going to build his church and the gates of hell were not going to prevail against it. And that's what he was calling his disciples into. That's what he calls all disciples into. That's what Christians do. We're about building churches. And you understand what I'm talking about buildings. Churches can have buildings or not. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you do or you don't. It doesn't, it's not necessarily in right or wrong or it's a preference of different ways to do it. You can meet in a home. You can meet in a rented space. You can meet in your own space. It doesn't matter. The point is you're the people of God gathering together to worship God and celebrate God. And Jesus, that's, that's what I'm building. I'm building this gathering of the saints, the saints to, to gather around my name and my purposes. And the biggest purpose that we have as the saints of God is to declare the gospel, to declare this message, to spread the message of the gospel. That is the number one biggest thing that he's told us to do. He's told us lots about, you know, to preach the word, right? Music and song and singing and melody, those are big things that we're told in the Bible. 
to do. All kinds of things. Prayer, fasting, being generous, serving one another, doing justice, communion, baptism. There's all these, it's not complicated. You know, the things that, that, you know, God told Moses, build the tabernacle like this. He perfectly obeyed and built it exactly that way. Jesus has given us all kinds of things, all kinds of ways to build his church, to build his people, to be on his mission, to live for his purposes. It's not that complicated. But the question is, will we build it the way he wants us to? Like living stones being built together. That means, so, so we're so focused on the out, the, the, you know, what a church building should look like or what religious systems and habits should look like. And there can be great traditions of men that are very meaningful. But, you know, if something's been developed in history that's layering on top of the things that Jesus has given us, they're optional. They're always optional because they're not the words of God. And they can be, they can be negative sometimes. They can be neutral. They can be positive. The biggest thing that we have to do is, is to learn the lesson of Moses here is that the people kept screwing this up. They kept screwing it up over and over again. And they lived with the consequences of it. They were cursed because of it, because they would not actually obey the blueprints and the plans of God. And the blueprints and the plans of God that Jesus has given us to build the tabernacle today, to build God's people up today, it's not that complicated. It's pretty straightforward, actually. You just have to read the Gospels a little bit to kind of grasp it and understand what God is building with living stones, people who are radically committed to each other, joined together in unity around this mission, around this person and work of Jesus. Don't you want to be close to God? Don't you want to have God's presence in your life? Don't you want to have the blessing of God in your life? Don't you, don't you want to be able to enjoy the grace of Jesus more than you've ever enjoyed it? You see the people who are happy and fulfilled in God, don't you want to be just like them? I do. I want to be, I want to be like that. I want to be somebody who is filled with the joy of God all the time. How do we get there? You follow the, follow the words of God. God said, this is how you do it. It's not complicated. It's not that complicated. Exodus, we've talked about Exodus as in coming out of Egypt and being set free from oppression and set free from mistreatment and set free in all those ways, and that's true. But building the tabernacle, that's the true Exodus. This is, the tr this is what Exodus is actually about. Some people will wrongly use the story of Exodus to say that it guarantees political or economic liberation. It doesn't. That's called liberation theology. It doesn't guarantee that. It happened in that generation. There were 400 years before that where it didn't happen. Israel was re-enslaved and exiled at other points too. Not all Christians today are liberated from their oppressors, either economically or politically. It doesn't guarantee actual physical liberation. But that, that's why it's about the true exodus. The true exodus is that God wants to bring us out of the darkness of this life. The sin in our own hearts. The sin that is so pervasive, that has so much power, that wants to control us, that wants to dominate us, that wants us to harm each other and hate each other and divide against each other and sin against God. And the true exodus is this tabernacle. Saying, I'm pulling you out of the darkness of the world and I'm bringing you into the true light to have the true relationship with me. That's why it's so powerful. That's what it means. That's why it's so good. God, think about it. God wants to have a relationship with me. I can be pretty terrible sometimes, but God still wants to have a relationship with me. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with each one of you. 
we can all be pretty awful sometimes. But he goes to great lengths to find all these ways by his grace to forgive us and to draw us close because he cherishes us and he loves us. There's a lot we don't understand about this tabernacle business. You know, we, if we tried to build it, if we had a project, we're like, we're going to rebuild it just to see if we could. It'd be fun. Like, we could not be confident that we could replicate it properly because there's a lot of mis- there was a lot of kind of contextual shared information that they just had amongst them at the time. So we, even the conclusions we come to, we're just trying to piece it together and figure out what's probably more like this, but it could have been like this. But we don't know, but that's, it, does, it doesn't matter. It was temporary for a reason. It was a tent for a reason. It wasn't supposed to last forever. It was all pointing to the personal work of Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel writer John, who was a very good friend of Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 1, says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, it's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus has always existed, you know, the Trinitarian belief, Father, Son, Spirit. So there's this triune God, always there. So that means Jesus himself was involved in all this tabernacle business. All right? He was directly participating, giving the plans. This is part of God's overall plan. And then verse 14, in the same chapter, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase there where it says, He dwelt among us. That's the same root as the word tabernacle. It's telling us that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. This is what it's all about. If you get Jesus, you get everything. This is what it's all about. There's so many parallels with the life of Jesus. When you look at the story of Exodus and then you read the Gospels and you start connecting dots and your mind gets blown at every level. It's... it's, pretty amazing. Some people think it's just a glitch in the matrix or it's just a deja vu or it's a conspiracy or people just invented it. But we know better. We know, we know it's not that. We know that we're directly told uh, these different uh, meanings that God's got this one whole plan. He's got these two stories, the Exodus story and the life of Jesus that go perfectly together, all these parallels. So actually you see at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the gospels, you're told that he went into the wilderness for 40 days. What does that sound like? Sounds like the Israelites wandering around in the, in, the, in the wilderness for 40 years. It's a parallel there. We see Jesus, of course, was, was tempted. Three, three temptations. Peculiarly, strangely, seem to align with the temptations that the, the, the Israelites faced. So they were tempted to gather more bread than they should have gathered. God said, only gather the amount of bread you need for each day. Jesus, in the wilderness, was tempted to make and gather bread that he was not permitted to make and to gather. And where they failed, where they were disobedient, Jesus was perfectly obedient and passed the test, was righteous in that. They constantly put God to the test. They put themselves in, they would, did such stupid things. They put themselves in such, they put themselves in harm's way all the time. And God had to continually rescue them and save them and help them. And they put God to the test. Jesus was tempted. He was taken to a high point and tempted, throw yourself off. And see if God will save you. And he resisted. He said, I'm not going to put... No, you don't put God to the test. Where they failed, Jesus succeeded. It's, it's next level. It's next level. It gets better and better all the time with this Jesus stuff. Just, I just want to tell you. The more you get into the Jesus stuff, it just gets better and better every time. All the time. They failed the test. They were tempted to worship 
a false god. And they failed the test. They made their own golden calf and they failed. And they worshipped a false god and false idol. Jesus was tempted to worship the greatest false god. And he was victorious. He overcame. He obeyed. Where they failed, he obeyed. And he resisted that temptation to worship the greatest false god that you could ever be tempted to worship. Moses, you know, he receives the Ten Commandments on the mountain. Jesus preaches the, the Beatitudes from the mountain, which are basically, if you don't realize that, they're the, they're the souped-up version of the Ten Commandments. They're like, they're like the, the Ten Commandments are like the foundation, and then Jesus is like, okay, this is the, all the big stuff I really, really wanted to get. This is the heart of it, what I really want to get to. This is what the Beatitudes are. You see that parallel there as well. You see Moses, when he's in the presence of God, he comes down to the people. His face is shining with the glory of God. Actually, he put a bag over his head because they were freaked out by it. Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, and what happens? The cloud, the cloud comes, and Jesus' whole body shines. It's the transfiguration, if you know it. His whole body shines, reveals his true, godly, divine nature. And you see, you see the parallel there where you, you have the human version of it. It doesn't last, but you see this situation with Jesus. You see his true nature shining through. And what does Peter say? Peter says, let's put up some tents. Sounds kind of like tabernacle thinking, doesn't it? Let's make some tents. We can hang out here and stay a little bit. That's what Peter wanted to do. Jesus, time and time again, Jesus came to complete the mission of Exodus. The mission of Exodus is not that you'll always have political or economic or cultural liberation. That's, that can happen. It has happened at moments, but it doesn't always happen. We pray for that. We can seek that. We can want that. But there's the true liberation. It's a spiritual liberation a freedom from your own sin, from your own shame, from your own past, from everything, every thought that would ever condemn you and say you're not good enough to God, your life is not valuable enough, that you've screwed up too much. In Jesus, it all, it all gets taken away. We, our family recently have just been overwhelmed with, we've been watching, uh, Jesus has come alive to us in a new way. I want to be careful about how I describe this. This is a strange thing to put into a sermon. But we've, we've been uh, watching the show, the TV show, The Chosen. Any Chosen fans in the room? We've got a few. It was, uh, the Sam put us onto this and a few other people in our lives put us onto this. I really want to recommend most Christian like media and, and shows and, and movies and stuff are awful and terrible and like cheesy. And <laughs> like, you watch them and you're like, oh, it's like, I don't want to show anyone that. Um, the Chosen is a free app. You can, it's all free. You can watch it. Um, it's, uh, I don't get any benefit from it. I'm not like an investor or anything like that. I just love it. It's so good. It's really good. It's really good. It's not a replacement for the Bible. They take some poetic license with things. They're dramatizing it. You know, they're, they're creating backstories and connections that aren't in the Bible, but it's based on Scripture. And we're watching it without kids, and they're like wanting to read the Bible more, asking us more theological questions, and it's just... It's a rich experience. I just want to. Re- it's a kind of a strange thing to add to a sermon, like go watch this TV show. But go watch the TV show. Like, it's watch the first. The first episode's like like decent, but it just gets better and better. So I just encourage you to watch. Uh, try and check out the Chosen if you haven't sh- uh, seen it yet. Okay, so back to the tabernacle. So eventually, this tabernacle thing that they made ended up being put into. A, converted into a temple. So once they got into the land, then many years you know, after they've been in the land, they, they, they make it out of more permanent materials, right? It's made out of brick. And it's, but it, it, 
tabernacle and temple, they're exactly the same thing. One's just more permanent. It doesn't move around anymore. It's just maybe more permanent structures. And it actually destroyed at some point as well. But the priests do exactly the same stuff in the temple. Jesus, when Jesus came, he said that he was going to destroy the temple in three days. That's one of the reasons they wanted to crucify him. Because they're like, that's heresy. Like, you can't say that. Well, what we're told is, we're told in, in, in the Gospel of John, again in chapter 2, that Jesus, he said he was talking about his own, he was taught the temple was his body. That's what he was taught. He was gonna, his body was going to be destroyed. And it was a, an allusion to uh, three days, being dead in the grave for three days, and he would resurrect. So his own, his own body is going to be, is, is, so it's, it's, not, it's not like the Scripture's just hinting, like, and you have to like really think hard to figure out, like, oh, this tabernacle stuff, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's about Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's like there's no, there's not, it's not even a thing. But you should even question it. Jesus, this is my, he's talking about his own body. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to, it's, it's my body. My body is the temple. He's, he's tabernacling amongst us. He who made his home amongst us, who dwelt amongst us. And then to underscore this even more, the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 22, it tells us of the picture of heaven. And it says this, if I can actually get to it. Chapter 21, verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. If you, if you, if you, <laughs> it's not a suggestion. It's not a hint. Everything we've read in Exodus, it's all about Jesus. It's the Jesus stuff. Now, how is this all made possible? How is, does Jesus become the temple? How does he become the sacrifice for us? That first altar that we looked at in the, in the outer court, that first altar, that represents substitution. That's where you, you take the blood of an innocent animal. But it was, again, it was all imagery, prefiguring Christ. And Jesus came and said, I'll, I'll be the, the offering, I'll be the sacrifice, I'll be killed and destroyed and murdered, and my blood will be gathered. But Hebrews also tells us that instead of going into the temple that they had and spreading his blood in the temple, because the temple is a copy and an image of the actual place where God lives, actual heaven, which is maybe not up, but interdimensional. I don't know how it works, but it's somewhere. It says that Jesus passed through the heavens. And what happened in the temple, in the actual temple that they had at the time, the curtain was torn in two, ripped from top to bottom, the curtain torn in two, which is an indication now there is no separation there's no priestly system anymore. That's why, we're called, that's why I'm called a pastor, not a priest. We're all priests because the curtain has been torn and you come directly into God's presence only through Jesus. It only happens through Jesus. And it tells us that Jesus essentially went into God's presence after being on the cross. He didn't descend into hell. Hell was the place of the cross. And he went to heaven after he died and his righteous perfect, innocent blood, the only innocent human blood that could be found in all of human history now was, you could say metaphorically, sprinkled in the heavenly place, which means in the most intimate inner chambers of God, there's perfect human blood sprinkled in that place, which is a, a permanent forever sign to God Almighty that the human race has been cured of their sin. It's always before him. Always before him. It means your sins are taken away 
forever. This is the gospel. Maybe you've never heard it before. All other religions are you have to work really hard. You have to keep doing this, otherwise God's really angry and he'll just keep smiting you and keep punishing you because he hates you so much. God of the Bible loves you so much and loves us so much that he sacrificed his son and his blood was shed in the heavenly places that now it's, it's a permanent mark in heaven that God looks at and says, see, one way it could work is God becomes less holy so that we can connect with him. That's not how he did it. He came to us and lived a perfect holy life and then makes us holy so that we can go and be with him. That's how it works. I think we need to worship. Let's have the band come up. We need to worship. This is the best news. I'll tell you the story. I knew you wouldn't forget, Christy. You need to hear the story of uh, Francisco from El Salvador. Yeah, that's right. So the doctor realized that he had the same blood type as Francisco. It's B negative. So he put down his surgical instruments and took off his gloves and went and, and cleaned up his arm and took his pint of his own blood and then took about 20 minutes, took some, drank some water, ate some food to kind of recover his strength, went back to the operating table and with all the other medical staff there, they watched the transfusion of the, the, his own blood going into Francisco's body and then he picked up, you know, put his gloves back on and picked up the, the instruments again and continued to operate and they saved his life. They saved his life. It's a picture, isn't it? But in the Old Testament, you see, God, God came. He found a way through the tabernacle to get the people in, in relationship with him, to forgive them of their sin that they might be led and be owned by him and, and have an identity in him. But the problem with the human heart is it's a fatal condition that can only be solved with transfusion of divine blood. So he came and said, I'll, I'll give you my own life so that you can continue to live. That's the picture of the gospel, so that you can be liberated, truly liberated forever from the power of sin and darkness in your life. Don't we have a good God? Yes. He's so good. He's so good. This is why the Bible is alive. This is why the Old Testament is not irrelevant. You read Exodus and you're like, oh, you're scratching your head. So thankful, God, for what you've done for us. Let me encourage you today, if you don't know Jesus, repent of your sin place your life in his hands. Trust him. If you know someone that you think might like some of this stuff, have them join us online. Invite them next time. Bring them with you. There's got to be someone in your life that you think, they'd be blessed to hear this. They need to hear this. If you need to respond in any way, you can do that connect card that Rochelle was talking about. You can text in the word enjoy to 94,000. If you want to follow Jesus, you want to be baptized, you want to get more involved at Trinity, whatever step you need to take, don't just say, well, that was nice. I'm going to go home and be the same. Say, no, I'm going to, I want to obey. I want to be like Moses and build it the way God is calling me to build it.